Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. Today at our feature, Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about COVID-19 and minorities. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. Recently, we reported that the long battle to stop the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was coming to a head. As of July 5th, the project is dead, and environmentalists, indigenous people, environmental justice activists, and other opponents of the pipeline were celebrating. The pipeline was supposed to carry fracked natural gas for 600 miles through West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina. When pipeline owners Dominion and Duke Energy announced they were quitting the project, they acknowledged that the myriad legal challenges and grassroots opposition to the pipeline had driven up the cost from the original estimate of approximately $5 billion to $8 billion. As Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club, said, quote, Duke and Dominion did not decide to cancel the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. The people on frontline organizations that led this fight for years forced them into walking away. Today's victory reinforces that united communities are more powerful than the polluting corporations that put profits over our health and future, end quote. Only about three weeks before cancellation of the project, It got a boost when the Supreme Court ruled that the pipeline could pass under the Appalachian Trail. However, earlier this year, a federal court vacated the pipeline's permit to build a natural gas processor station in a historic black community in Virginia because it would disproportionately harm the health of the mainly black residents. Courts have also vacated permits because of the pipeline's passage through forest land and waterways and its effects on endangered species. Decision time is near on the proposed Pebble Mine in Alaska. The biggest red salmon run in the world is building at Bristol Bay. Up to 50 million fish could surge into its eight river systems in coming weeks on par with past seasons. When it's all done, the fishery will provide nearly half the global supply of wild sockeye salmon. Fishermen will then learn if a massive gold and copper mine that's been hanging over their heads for two decades gets a green light from the federal government. In mid-July, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers will unveil its federal record of decision on the permit application of Northern Dynasty of Vancouver, British Columbia, to build the Pebble Mine at the sprawling headwaters that provide the spawning and rearing grounds for the region's salmon. The Pebble Mine is acknowledged to be a challenging project. 
It is one of the world's largest undeveloped copper, gold, and molybdenum deposits, but is in a remote location that would require several billions of dollars in infrastructure investment. It is also in an environmentally sensitive location at the headwaters of streams that feed salmon-bearing rivers and support large commercial and Native American fisheries. Quote, As Bristol Bay's fishermen head out to the fishing grounds for the next six weeks, we are counting on Congress to protect the over 14,000 workers directly employed by the commercial salmon fishery, end quote, said Andy Wink director of the Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. Quote, Pebble Mine is a threat to Alaskan jobs, America's food security, and a salmon resource unparalleled anywhere on the planet. End quote. Surveys and polls have shown that the majority of Alaskans oppose the Pebble Mine. Investors have pulled out over the years. Mitsubishi, Rio Tinto, and BlackRock are among companies that have pulled out in the past, though none gave reasons for their withdrawal. The most likely reason was concerns over the uncertain economics of the project. Global investment banking firm Morgan Stanley, once the fourth largest institutional shareholder in Northern Dynasty, dumped its shareholdings in the project in March of this year, as reported by the National Resources Defense Council and CNN Money. While the reasons for Morgan Stanley's recent sell-off are unknown, the global investment company is known as a strong proponent of the principle that environmental and social responsibility are essential to long-term investment success, said the National Resources Defense Council. For the first time, a state attorney general has filed a consumer protection lawsuit against fossil fuel companies for climate crimes. On June 25th, District of Columbia Attorney General Carl A. Racine filed the lawsuit against the world's four largest oil companies, BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell. The lawsuit alleges that the companies are, quote, systematically and intentionally misleading district customers about the role their products play in causing climate change, end quote. The lawsuit accuses the companies of having orchestrated a decades-long public relations campaign to sow doubt in the public's mind about climate science and dismiss the role of the company's fossil fuel products in causing the climate crisis. The lawsuit also accuses the companies of lying about their products as clean and about the amounts of money they were investing in reducing carbon emissions. Last year, The Guardian concluded that the four companies topped the list of the world's worst carbon dioxide emitters, with Chevron at the head of the list. According to The Washington Post, U.S. House Democrats unveiled a sweeping climate change plan that includes requiring utilities to reach net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040 and automakers to produce only electric vehicles by 2035. The plan includes these provisions. The nation's automakers would manufacture only electric cars. Utilities would have to stop producing pollution linked to climate change. And the federal government would double its investment in mass transit. All this and more was proposed by House Democrats last week under a plan aimed at bringing the U.S. economy's greenhouse gas emissions, including carbon dioxide and methane, to zero by 2050. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, 
and Representative Kathy Castor, Democrat of Florida, released an ambitious package of climate proposals that calls for a combination of government mandates, tax incentives, and new infrastructure. The proposals would mandate electric utilities be net zero emitters of greenhouse gases by 2040, and automakers produce only electric cars by 2035. The 538-page plan also backs placing a price on carbon emissions, imposing tougher methane limits, and boosting energy efficiency in buildings. Solar and wind energy tax credits would be extended through 2025, and the tax credit for electric vehicles would be expanded. Plastic isn't the only human pollutant infiltrating the deepest corners of the ocean. Two separate studies presented at the Goldschmidt Geochemistry Conference found mercury in fish and crustaceans living 36,000 feet under the sea in the Mariana Trench. This was a surprise to Dr. Ruoyu Sun, a scientist with Taijin University in China, who led one of the research teams, said a Goldschmidt Conference press release published by Fizz.org. Scientists have long known that mercury, which is poisonous to both humans and animals, enters the ocean and the animals within it, concentrating in higher amounts as it works its way up the food web through a process known as bioaccumulation. Swordfish, for example, contain 40 times the amount of mercury that salmon does. This means that humans who eat lots of fish are at risk of mercury poisoning. This can cause neurological and heart damage and is especially dangerous for developing fetuses. However, scientists previously thought that this process was mostly taking place in the upper ocean. Sun's team found methylmercury, a toxic form of the metal that easily accumulates in animals, in the ocean's deepest trench. Previous research had concluded that methylmercury was mostly produced in the top several hundred feet of the ocean, this would have limited mercury bioaccumulation by ensuring that fish which forage deeper than that would have had limited opportunities to ingest the methylmercury. With this work, there is a new understanding, Sun said in the press release. Mercury in the oceans mostly comes from a variety of sources. Coal-fired utilities and gold mining are a couple of examples. In the water, mercury changes oxidation states. Mercury can be converted to methylmercury, the form that is absorbed in the food chain. Methylmercury is water-soluble, so it can rise to the surface and be carried broadly across the ocean by the wind. It can also find its way into ocean sediments. In hindsight, it is not all that surprising that mercury can be found in the deep ocean. Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, a utility company and state monopoly that's exclusively responsible for providing energy to California, caused the campfire in that state because of a faulty transmission line. The fire destroyed the town of Paradise and killed 84 people. In court, the company was found guilty of 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter and one of unlawfully starting a fire. A report presented to a grand jury before the trial found that PG&E willfully ignored repeated warnings about its aging power lines and poor maintenance. The report said the company showed, quote, a callous disregard, end quote, for life and property. 
PG&E sentence is a fine of merely $3.5 million, even though the fire destroyed almost 1,900 structures, including nearly 14,000 single-family homes and over 500 businesses. The company will also have to pay $500,000 for the cost of the investigation that preceded the court case. No executives or employees of PG&E will go to prison. Butte County District Attorney Michael Ramsey was distressed that no one received jail time for the homicides and pointed out that the fines were minute in comparison to the company's profits. He said, quote, We treat corporations as persons, but we don't send corporations to jail. The best the state could do is to find the company as a person. There's an obvious disconnect there, end quote. The giant German chemical and pharmaceutical manufacturer Bayer AG bought Monsanto, the massive biotechnology company, two years ago for $63 billion. Recently, Bayer agreed to pay over $10 billion to settle some 95,000 lawsuits claiming that Monsanto's flagship product, the herbicide Roundup, causes cancer. Plaintiffs have filed almost 125 lawsuits claiming that their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma resulting from repeated exposure to Roundup's active ingredient, glyphosate. In agreeing to the settlement, Bayer doesn't have to admit liability or wrongdoing. Not long after the settlement, U.S. Judge William Shub ruled that the state of California is prohibited from placing a cancer warning on the label of Roundup because he decided that, quote, the great weight of evidence indicates that glyphosate is not known to cause cancer, end quote. In 2015, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer determined that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen. Despite that finding, the EPA and its European counterpart agencies maintain steadfast support for Bayer's claim that glyphosate doesn't cause cancer. The EPA, however, is basing its judgment on studies of glyphosate that Monsanto, not independent scientists, conducted affirming that glyphosate doesn't cause cancer, as the San Francisco Chronicle reported. And now for our feature, we will hear Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about COVID-19 and minorities. The speed at which the COVID-19 virus changed most of our lives was pretty shocking. The speed at which the virus spread at the very least felt incredibly fast. But most shocking of all was how devastating the virus was for minorities and people in low-income communities. In Indiana, black Hoosiers accounted for 13% of cases reported by the state's Department of Health, although only being about 9.8% of the population. Latinos accounted for 11.6% of the state's COVID-19 cases, despite being 7% of the state's population. Statistics like those are found all throughout the U.S. But why? That's what the House Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change wanted to find out. This is Subcommittee Chairman Representative Paul Tonko of New York. Communities that have long faced the worst injustices continue to suffer more air pollution, and vulnerability to our changing climate. Our approach must be equal to this challenge. 
building a comprehensive strategy that works to restore environmental justice for communities of color and low-income neighborhoods. As part of the fact-gathering for that proposed strategy, Tonko Subcommittee invited witnesses who could speak about those issues. This is Jacqueline Patterson, Senior Director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. As we all know, the same systemic inequities that make certain populations differentially vulnerable to various impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic are the same systemic underpinnings that comprise the root causes driving environmental injustice, including climate change. Racism, xenophobia, sexism combined with poverty, housing, housing insecurity, racial profiling, differential access to healthcare, under-resourced education, privatized criminal justice, and disproportionate exposure to pollution that attacks the lungs, rendering communities even more vulnerable to COVID-19 that also targets the lungs. These are all critical commonalities. One recent study found that even small increases in fine particulate matter, such as PM 2.5, have an outsized effect on COVID-19 in the United States. An increase of just one microgram per cubic meter corresponded to a 15% increase in COVID-19 deaths. Evidence shows that people who have been living in places that are more polluted over time, they're more likely to die from the coronavirus. In one study, in the same study, which looked at 3,080 counties in the United States, people who had lived in counties with long-term pollution exposure for 15 to 20 years had significantly higher mortality rates likely due to the higher risk of existing respiratory and heart diseases in the areas of high pollution. And these are our communities. To add to the injustice, African-American and Latino-American people are typically exposed to 56 and 63% more PM2.5 pollution than they produce through consumption and daily activities. Yet another dimension to the injustice. Furthermore, the health effects associated with indoor air pollution include respiratory illnesses, heart disease, and cancer, each of which have been linked to increased vulnerability to mortality due to COVID-19. And once again, African-Americans are more likely to be to have respiratory conditions exacerbated by indoor air pollution. Once again, we have a response by the administration that prioritizes protecting the profits of big corporations while comparatively neglecting to advance action at the scale and depth that truly upholds the well-being of people. The sentiment was shared by Mustafa Santiago Ali, Vice President of the Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization National Advocacy Center at the National Wildlife Federation. Today's hearing comes at a critical moment in the history of our country. Frontline communities are under attack from multiple emergencies happening at the same time. Black communities are are dealing with the systemic racism that has infected the policing in our communities that is literally choking us to death. The rolling back of environmental rules and regulations has us gasping for air due to the cumulative public health impacts from the burning of fossil fuels in our communities. COVID-19 continues to devastate Black and Brown and Indigenous communities, both in infections and deaths. So when we say, I can't breathe, we literally can't breathe. Over 2 million Americans have been infected with the coronavirus and over 113,000 have died. Communities of color across our nation's health and wealth are being impacted by the burning of fossil fuels that is a significant driver in the climate crisis and the impacts from the coronavirus that we find ourselves dealing with. We have over 500,000 homeless citizens in our country, and many of them are at risk both from air pollution and the lack of clean, accessible water. 
which is critical to both personal hygiene and the ability to protect oneself from COVID-19 infections. The last time I joined you, I shared that disproportionately, the majority of fossil fuel facilities are located in communities of color, lower wealth communities, and on indigenous lands. 2.4 million miles of pipeline is crisscrossing our country, traveling through indigenous land, through farm country, and ends up on the Gulf Coast in vulnerable communities who often have to bear the burdens of these toxic exposures. As has been mentioned earlier, in our country, we have over 100,000 people who are losing their lives each year prematurely to air pollution. That's more folks that are dying from toxic air than are dying from gun violence. We have 25 million with asthma and 7 million kids and many of our communities of color and lower income and lower wealth communities are literally dying for a breath of fresh air. We know that many of our communities are closely located to toxic facilities and they are suffering from chronic medical conditions, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease, and lung diseases, as well as the cancer clusters that we find across our country. Despite the testimony, some members of Congress did not see the link between air pollution and COVID-19. Representative David McKinley of West Virginia said it was more unhealthy to remove businesses from those areas than it was to let them pollute. Look, last, uh, last November, this subcommittee held a similar hearing on challenges facing frontline communities as they transition away from fossil fuels. We highlighted towns like Welch, West Virginia, Gillette, Wyoming, Arlington, Kentucky, and Petersburg, Indiana, all of which depend on fossil fuels for their livelihood and existence. Now, eight months later, let's revisit Welch in McDowell County. Welch is unique. It has the a minority population, the largest in West Virginia, of 35% minority. It's now experiencing a poverty rate of 27%. And unemployment has grown to 15%. And this lack of jobs has led McDowell County to having the highest drug overdose rate among all the, all the counties in America. In a conversation with the mayor of Welch last week, he implied that the repercussions of COVID create short-term problems, but the anti-fossil fuel agenda from the left is a long-term threat for communities like Welch and would completely destroy the economy of the city of Welch and the entire region. So Mr. Chairman, tying air pollution to COVID-19, really, seriously, it is a simplistic answer to complicated to a complicated question. Once again, you are, are taking advantage of a public health crisis to justify your party's agenda against fossil fuels. Some will call fossil fuels pollution, but in West Virginia, we call them jobs. Representative Tonko said members of Congress would use a testimony to address the longstanding harms. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co op grocery store since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street, near the Courthouse Square and Shreve Hall 
on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Join the Bloomington Community Orchard Work and Learn Days on Wednesdays from 5 to 8 p.m. at the flagship orchard site located at 2120 South Highland Avenue in Bloomington. Activities will include planting, pruning, and general cultivation of the nearly 100 diverse fruit trees and plants. Volunteering is open to people of all ages, abilities, and experience. Be on the lookout for mile-a-minute plant that is growing in southwest Monroe County and report it immediately. To see what it looks like, Google it. The vine is incredibly fast-growing, faster than kudzu, and very invasive. Please email a photo to Ellen Jacquart, spelled J-A-C-Q-U-A-R-T, at ellenjacquart at gmail.com, or go to the MC Iris website portal. Become a hellbender helper this afternoon at McCormick's Creek State Park at 1 p.m. Hellbenders are the largest salamanders found in Indiana and are facing endangerment. Join Jessica at the Nature Center for an interactive program to learn how you can help. Join Tony for the 2020 Trail Challenge on the Mountain Bike Trail at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, July 11th from 9 to 10 a.m. This is a less-traveled two-mile trail with a lot of great natural features. All programs at the park have a limited capacity. Please register by calling 812-849-3534 to reserve your spot. There will be a pollination party at the Paintown South Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, July 11th from 1 to 4 p.m. Celebrate the important role that pollinators play in our ecosystem as you check out the new pollinator garden planted with native flowers next to the activity center. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar power systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolar.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. 
For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 